Welcome to the Twins Talk It Up podcast, where my identical twin brother and I share our thoughts and provide solutions for executives and professionals who want to become masters of speaking and communicating so that they can maximize their influence and impact. Yes, we are identical twins who happen to also be public speakers, executive coaches, and sales leaders. Our company, DSB Leadership Group, focuses on equipping leaders who want to speak with confidence and authority, all while using their authentic voice. Here on the Twins Talk It Up podcast, we present topics about communication and leadership from our perspective as individuals and as twins. Welcome to the Twins Talk It Up podcast. Good to have everybody here. Welcome to another episode of the Twins Talk It Up podcast. I'm thrilled with my twin brother, Danny Brown, to have a special guest joining us today. Today, I want to welcome Tony Chapman. Tony is a public speaker. He's a corporate trainer, musician, and an author. And he actually serves as an incredible friend and a mentor for me. And so I want to thank Tony for joining our show. Tony, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. Great to be here, man. Really excited. Well, we're really thrilled to be able to have you here, Tony. And uh, right now, I can't think of a better guest to have on as we're still dealing with the health pandemic in not only our country, but around the world. And so much of what you do, Tony, is working with organizations, working with the C-suite and leaders, and helping them to navigate this climate. But before we get to any of that, you're coming to us from the city of New York. You guys were hit pretty hard. How is everything going right now in New York? How are you guys holding up? You know, it's interesting, getting hit hard and getting hit hard early is both a curse and a blessing, right? We definitely had to weather the worst part of the storm. And yet at the same time, it's brought a an awareness and a seriousness to the actual pandemic. New Yorkers know how to deal with this thing. And so, you know, right now, if you go outside, it's the streets aren't crazy. Everyone's wearing a mask. Everyone knows how to social distance. Everyone knows how to, when it's time to quarantine and hunker down, you know, we can do it. And even, you know, when you look at this week with it being the election and the long lines and the polls and, you know, I had an almost two hour line on Monday when I voted, you know, everyone's in a mask, no one's complaining, everyone's in a great mood. You, you just, once you go through that and it puts everything in perspective, it makes it a lot easier. So honestly, New York is probably one of the best places to be in the country right now. Wow, that's uh, quite phenomenal that you had brought that up, that it's a blessing and a curse at the same time. I mean, this health pandemic has put leadership to the test. And in many ways, it's revealed the type of leaders that we have at the helm of these organizations. Tony, at times like these, indicators are a reflection of what type of leader, what type of leader uh, this individual is and what type of organization they have, they have built. And do you also think because New York was able to um, get hit hard, get hit early, but the characteristics of the residents of New York, if it was in any other place in the country, this pandemic hit, would it have been a little bit different, you think? Well, I think you're onto something, Danny. And it's, it's A, there is a character of the New Yorkers to deal with it. But you also have to give great leadership credit to Cuomo, right? He communicated daily he gave very stern leadership. He had, you know, it was, here's what's going on. Here are the directives. And that combination was very important. So we actually had great leadership. And then we had, you know, a, a, 
a city of people that understand there are times you just have to sacrifice. There are times where things are going to be tough. I do think that that allowed us to weather the storm in ways. I don't want to speak for other cities, mm. but I definitely think that it gave us a leg up in how we dealt with it. Okay. Well, let me ask this, Tony, I'm, and I'm really encouraged to hear you are a true New Yorker, man. I'll tell you, you know, there's, there's no other place where you can find people that will fight tooth and nail for their city, good, bad, or ugly. And I, and I love that spirit about you. When it comes to companies as a whole, when it comes to these leaders, the C-suite, how do you feel like they've handled the health pandemic and what lessons can we be learned from the way that the companies you've worked with, you consult and how they've really faced this? They're all over the place. You know, I mean, the, the thing is, so a lot of times I talk about change and disruption and the big difference is change. Normally change is planned, right? You see something going on in the marketplace, whatever disruption just comes out of nowhere just like this came out of seemingly nowhere. And you see it on every end of the spectrum. You see some groups that it really just hit them and they don't know what to do. And their leadership is being tested. The cracks are being revealed. You have others that have said, hey, you know what? Okay, our greatest asset, even though it's always been a slogan, our greatest asset is our people. So how do we take care of them in this moment? How do we make sure that we make sure that their social needs are taken care of? their techno technological needs. Sometimes it's like, hey, we're going to send you a monitor. We're going to send you a laptop. We're going to send you whatever you need to make sure that you can actually do the job. We're going to actually change our expectations of productivity because we get you're not only working remotely, quote unquote, but you're doing so in the middle of a pandemic while trying to take care of a family and figuring out their schooling. And so the, the companies that A, really made the individual worker a priority and then B had leadership that was listen, that was able to listen and that had more of a human element than just a principled element. And then I'd say C organizations that didn't have a lot of previous bad change baggage, right? Like you do it bad a lot of times and you just lose trust. So the ones that didn't have that, those, things, those three things together really have made certain organizations stand out above others. That's a I great point. That. That's a I great point. That. As a former head of sales, uh, global sales, I've had to make sure that over the years I communicate very effectively. So I've led many regions around the world, different languages. I had a program, I had a country director in each country where they spoke very proficient English, where it was easy to communicate with that individual. And then they would take the communication down to the, to the employees in the country. Uh, and we just had to make sure that every employee uh, felt that they were taken care of by management first. And then they were able to move forward, if that made sense. So it is interesting how you stated that some look for their business, some look for, out for the employee. So it's a different perspective on how people are doing things. You know, I notice uh, behind you, you have a collection of uh, records and you also have your book. And in your book, The Force Multiplier, you write about how leaders can build trust, loyalty, and get the best out of their teams. But the book is more than just that. It's also about leaders maximizing their ability to lead. So during this pandemic, during your book, during your experience, as you put it all together, can you tell us what led you to write this book? And how do you see this shift transforming how leaders view themselves and their teams, specifically even now during this time of pandemic? 
Okay. Danny, number one, great question. Great setup. I would even expand it beyond that. If you, when people really get the book and read it and they let it change the lens of what they look at things, they realize it's not just a leadership book. It's a relationship book. Wow. And when you understand, because true leadership is about relationships. Even the example that you meant that you mentioned being global, it was really about having relationships in those different countries. And even if it was a point person that they felt connected, right? The reason I re- wrote the book is after I started speaking for a while and I'm traveling around the country and I'm doing all this stuff, you just hear the same stuff over and over again. It's, you know, my boss, this, and it's, it's always, you know, seven or eight very specific things to the point you start going. So were these people ever trained in this area? Was this, was this ever even addressed? And, and so then in my mind, I start going back and say, okay, wait, wait, wait. I've sat in so many offices and just like, you know, this is one bookshelf, but you know, you move the records and you've got all these leadership books, right? And I, they're the leadership books everyone else has. And I started thinking, okay, wait a second. People have these books, but either they're not reading them or the books don't address the real issue. And I felt it was a combination of the two because the truth is when you're put into a leadership position, you don't need a lot of theory. Yeah. What you need are, is, are practical, specific strategies that you can implement in real time and get real results. And for me, that's what it was about. It was if knowing what I know, if I had a group of new managers and new leaders and I could train them, here's exactly where I would start. And the reality is, if you address those issues with new managers and new leaders, what you're going to find is, as you go up the leadership chain, it's still the same issue, right? Because truly leadership doesn't change that much. The scope of it changes, the amount of authority and responsibility changes, but it's still dealing with people. Yeah. We'll be right back after this short break. We want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Live Love Thanks. Live Love Thanks helps purpose-driven women leaders, executives, and entrepreneurs to permanently eliminate clutter and end stress and overwhelm so they can move forward in their careers, relationships, and health. Visit LiveLoveThanks.com for impactful coaching and program professional women's. Today, we'd like to thank our sponsor, AppGallop, where cloud meets commerce. AppGallop is a cloud commerce automation and marketplace platform, enabling service providers to drive revenue growth, achieve agility, and kickstart digital transformation. In fact, if you're in the telco space or you're an internet service provider, AppGallop will accelerate your time to the fast-growing cloud market, delivering all the top-selling cloud services to your customers with unified identity, access, subscription billing, and payment management. If you want to sell your cloud platform, you need AppGallop. If you have telco products, circuits, switches, hosting services, whether it's private cloud or public cloud, and you want to include AWS, Microsoft Azure, and Google, you want to make sure you use AppGallop, the one-stop platform for digital transformation. Thank you very much, AppGallop. Thank you for listening to the Twins Talk It Up podcast. As a special thank you, we have an amazing offer for our listeners. 
for a free consultation over the next two weeks. Visit our website and schedule your free 30-minute consultation. And now, let's get back to the episode. Welcome back to Twins Talk It Up podcast. Yeah, I love how you said that, Tony. At every level of leadership, you're still working with people. You've got to be willing to acknowledge that there isn't a necessarily one answer for every situation. You've got to learn to adopt based on the people that are in front of you. You've got to learn to adjust your model at times to bring the best out of them. So in the fourth, sorry, can I jump in there? So it's like this, I have this conversation all the time, right? Where someone will say, man, you know, I am so tired of dealing with all these crazy people. I can't wait till I get two or three promotions and I won't have to deal with them. I'm like, no, what's going to happen in two or three promotions is you're going to be dealing with crazy people with power. That's going to be the difference. Mm -hmm. So you got to learn how to deal with this thing right now. Yeah, that's so true. So right now, when you're talking to different companies, are you starting at the C-suite? Do you pitch it towards the management level? Because ultimately, the scope of what you're training and teaching on, Tony, is going to impact every level of that organization, right? So how are you getting in and and what is the the area you're attacking first or you're addressing first? Because when you talk about being a disruptor, you're, you're the kind of guy that doesn't shy away from pointing out what's the obvious, right? So how do you get in there? What do you start with typically? Ideally, here's what's happening. I go in, I'm, I get some connection with the top, enough to get buy-in, mm-hmm. and then I'm going down to that first level of leadership because that's where the reality happens, right? It is the supervisor, it is the manager, it is the team lead that really makes things happen. Mm-hmm. People who are contributors don't have a relationship with the C-suite. They have a relationship with their manager, and that's their reflection of the company. So whether we're dealing with how to navigate disruption and how to lead during disruption or dealing with you know, some kind of diversity and inclusion issue like unconscious bias, it is hitting that area, but knowing that I have buy-in from the top, right? And then once you hit that area, then I go to the top and really train them. And then we sandwich it down towards the middle. To me, that's one of the most effective ways because what happens is when you start at the top, there's so many degrees of separation that what's said at the top doesn't happen at the bottom. But if you deal with the bottom and the top at the same time, then you're able to kind of work your way through into the middle. That to me is what's been the most effective. And that makes a lot of sense too, Tony. I think uh, what I'm going to ask is, is something that you talk about often in your workshops and in your book. And it's so appropriate that you say, we're going to address the top, but we're going to really build from the bottom up because what can happen is we're all tempted at that level when we're the C-suite, we're the owner, we're running a business to have what we call blind spots. We've done it our way. We've been stuck doing it our way and we've got to figure it out. And it's not me that needs to help. It's them, right? Right. So let's talk about now that you've gotten in the organization, typically and you, you've got the owner's or the C-suites buy-in to say, hey, Tony, you're right. We could use that training. Go ahead and help our management group out. Go ahead and help those, those leaders that are really transitioning to understanding the level of communication, the connectivity, et cetera. How do you now work up to getting those in the power that to understand that they've got to uh, address their own blind spots, that the organizational culture is really a reflection of them? Yeah. And the last thing you said is so critical. When we think of organizational culture, what we're really talking about are the relationships within the organization, right? And what the leadership drives, what they accept, what they allow, all of those things together. 
you know, to me, there are two different types of blind spots. You have the, what we consider the unconscious bias type blind spots that we have when we talk about diversity and inclusion. And that's one thing. It always needs to be addressed at every level. I think in terms of leadership, though, you have a totally different animal. Mm. When you have people who are in leadership, number one, they think that they have a better grasp on what's going on in the company than they do. Okay. Mm -hmm. they, they absolutely don't. And not only do they not, they get false information because people know how to address the leader versus to come to them with the reality. So they know, for example, if a leader does not do well with bad news, they don't bring the bad news. Even though that may be the absolute thing they need to hear, it's the emperor has no clothes and I'm not saying anything, right? You have that thing that's, that's right there. On top of it, even though leaders believe that they're not susceptible to this, we're all susceptible to being charmed. And so people know how to charm the relationship. And so what ends up happening is, in some ways, this is right and justified, but it also leads to blind spots. We promote people that we trust and like, but do we trust and like them for the right reasons or have we been charmed? And those are areas that we have to be careful in because then what happens is you get a few really what I'd call cancerous leaders, people who have, you know, their caustic relationships, they're harsh, or they don't pull their, it's more of that. I'm going to say even more than not pulling their own weight. They do those things, but they're good producers. Yeah. And so they get a pass because they're good producers because the leader does not see the damage that they actually cause. And that damage is often revealed. It's like, a, you know, uh, Danny mentioned the word indicators earlier, right? There's leading indicators, which tell you what's about to happen. And then there's trailing indicators, which tells you what's happened, you know, in the past. A lot of times the damage that they've done is more like a trailing indicator. And you can't see it until it's later, but they've already been promoted out of that position now. So it's like, man, missed that one, right? Hey, and, and now the other person's getting blamed, whoever's in there. So yeah. those are really kind of the starting spots. And then I think the third is we all have to be honest with ourselves and say, okay, we have strengths and weaknesses, right? Like I am kind of the creative, big picture, visionary dude, but I am not the get into the weeds, hit all of the details, that person. I understand that about myself. And so I know I have to put people in those positions who can effectively do that thing. And that's where we work together best as a team. Unfortunately, too many leaders think that they're the best at everything. Mm -hmm. And not only the best at everything, you know, I wasn't even going to go here, but I might as well. There's this warped perspective of leadership sometimes that people start to buy into the, I'm a leader because I'm better than. Other people. And those things by nature cause havoc and blind spots. And so what happens is if they're not addressed in real time, we don't see it until the damage is already done. And they can be the very thing that sabotages our career path. Wow. I, I, I think that's very profound. You're absolutely correct. There are individuals who are put into leadership positions because at one time they had the highest scores or they had the best leads coming in and they close the most deals. That doesn't mean they're going to be a great leader. They just, there's the natural course that these guys have to be into and put into a management role when they're not good at it. Uh, secondly, you, you said that 
sometimes leaders have this philosophy of uh, I'm better than everyone. And I think that really people don't say it, but it causes a, a culture where people don't trust you. It causes a culture where people can't be vulnerable and they can't be open because they, they're afraid of, of being put down or beat down by asking questions. And then, and then lastly, it causes other people to say, well, I'll never become a leader because I don't, I don't fit in well with this person or I'm not their buddy. We're not frat brothers. We, don't go to, we didn't go to college together or yell together. And so it, it's starting to break down the culture more than build up the culture. And I'm sure you see this all the time. For companies to be successful or fail, sometimes it just comes down to culture more than anything else. Is that what you've seen as well when you're out there working with companies and individual leaders? Well, yeah. I mean, anybody can build a widget. Yeah. I mean, when you really think about it, like, okay, so a really good friend of mine uh, used to be over customer service for one of the most high-end hotel brands. If I said it, you go, oh my gosh, right? You know, if you've been fortunate enough to stay at one of those brands, you're great. You know, you've had a great experience, I should say. And he says, here's the deal, man. What we're really selling is a bed in a box. Hmm. Everything else is experience. But we're selling a bed that sits inside of a box. That's what a room is. <clears throat> and that's the same thing is, so it's that experience, right? The experience when it's outside of the organization, we can review it as customer service. Yeah. Yes. The experience when you're inside of the organization, we view it as culture. So it's absolutely that culture that drives it. And so what happens is that's what makes an organization more resilient. It makes it more nimble. So when change happens, we could turn on a dime versus others. You know, we're trying to, to turn an aircraft carrier. It's, it's all of those things together. And even, you know, so, you know, th this wasn't, this is beyond the scope of what you just asked, but it's making me think about this. You know, even when we start talking about, you know, productivity and everything, that comes down to the word we hear, engagement. Right. You hear the word engagement all the time. We've got fully engaged employees, disengaged, semi-engaged, you know, engaged, engaged, engaged. And yet very rarely do people say, well, here's what engagement actually is. We more say, here's what it's not or here's indicators. Engagement is nothing more than how much does someone care? Right. If I care, I'm engaged. And so it's, do I care and what am I willing to do? because I care. Yeah. Well, if you have a bad culture, you don't care. Mm. And so often you're working in spite of that not caring versus then because of that non-caring. And so you're not willing to go above and beyond the call of duty. You're not willing to take ownership. And then just as you said, Danny, then you look at people who are higher up in leadership positions and you say, well, they're all jerks. I don't want to be like them. And so that becomes your self-defeating prophecy of why you don't even want to move up the career path because you say, I don't want that package deal. I don't want to become like that. And yeah. so that really starts to you know, feed within the culture. And so now when you even hire new people, those new people become either infected or affected by your culture, depending on whether it's positive or negative. Yeah, there's a website... Um where people can go and find out about the rating of the CEO. And you can actually go and uh, get job interview questions to people who went and interviewed at the company. You can look at the rating of the company one to five, whether they like it, don't like it. And, and one of the things I find very interesting is the majority of the CEOs do not have high ratings. Wow. It just blows me away. And so when you look at the CEO not have high ratings, you look at the comments, people actually leave comments. What did you interview for the job? Were you offered the job? How easy was the job interview? 
It's just those three questions. And they respond based upon that. And the majority of let's say the culture, culture, culture. It, it was just, it just blows my mind that you look at the organization, it got to a point where it's very successful, but all of a sudden it's starting to tail off. And then you look at the CEO and you look at the correlation Someone has to say something. It just, <laughs> right. it just blows me away that no one's talking about the culture of the organization. <laughs> well, I mean, but think of the problem is, is that we've come to accept it as normal. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Right. Like, okay. So you, if you read uh, Gallup's polls on engagement, right. Um, we're at, I think around 28% engagement for the workforce. Mm-hmm. We got as high as the low thirties in May the pandemic and that was like an all-time high you're like okay wow the great news we're at an all-time high no the bad news is the all-time high is a third of our employees are engaged Mm -hmm. right we would never say that about any other part of our life if you went to the doctor and the doctor said you know there's one little issue everything else is cool but your heart's only working at 33 percent capacity you wouldn't say well glad it's nothing serious right (laughs) we would instead go yo fix that but that's the thing we do. We've gotten so, here's how used we've gotten to it in the workplace. The original title of my book was not the force multiplier. Mm. The original title of the book was going to be why I hate my job. Mm. Here's the thing. Yeah, Cause the idea was why do I hate my job? And it was going to be like, the cover was gonna be like a multiple choice answer. It's like what I do, my boss, which was the right answer to be checked. And I started doing like informal surveys. I talked to people, do you know, it was very difficult to find people who had had two great bosses in a row. Mm. Mm-hmm. Not, not decent, not acceptable, but great. It was, it was an anomaly almost. And yet we've come to accept that anomaly as normal. So now, Danny, as you talk about going to these websites and saying most of the CEOs are rated low, why isn't anyone saying anything? It's just become accepted as, as normal. Right. And once a couple of organizations come in and say, no, we're not going to accept that as normal. We're going to do it differently. They're going to disrupt the industry because they're going to have such a competitive advantage because their culture is going to be so much better and people will flock to that company. And then what's going to happen is all the other companies are going to try to figure out why they're doing it, but they're going to, Im- they're going to imitate the wrong things. Yeah. And instead of having better CEO, they're going to say, well, what are the programs they initiated? And those programs are not going to drive the culture because the leadership drove the culture. Let me ask this, Tony, because I want to dig a little deeper in that. <clears throat> and I know the answer could simply be it's ego, but there's, there's got to be more to this. So my daughter is studying psychology in college. And it reminds me of when she was a little girl. And there was that one simple question. Why? Why, why, why? And it was cute at first, and they started getting a little annoying because she kept asking why. And I wondered, was she really curious about the answer? Did she really want to know? Did she want to push buttons? So why aren't more CEOs, the C-suite, asking them the, the question, why? Why don't we stop to say my actions or my inaction is leading not only to these poor scores, but really to poor results of our organizations? How do we get them to go beyond just the why? I mean, why? I think from my experience, the challenge is you're less motivated to question your own 
effectiveness mm-hmm. when you're viewed as successful. Got it. Right? You know, when things are falling apart, you have the inspiration of desperation. Mm-hmm. But when everything is good and your company is is got great profits and everything else, then wh- why would you go back and say, okay, hey, wh- why would I look at these numbers, my evaluations on some random website is being low. Instead, what you would do is say, it must be the people. Because you know what? The people that I'm leading don't say that. They say I'm awesome. And so I'm going to go with the people who say I'm awesome than some random website who says I'm not awesome. And so you end up with this little echo chamber of, of positive feedback. I think that's one component of it. You know, you're, you're surrounded mostly with other C-suite people who are also successful. And then there's a thing that people don't want to talk about. A lot of CEOs, they have imposter syndrome. They really <laughs> yes. do. They, they, they're just like, you know, I'm, I would say I'm relatively successful in my industry. There's, I want to get to some other levels, but I'm fairly well-respected. And I have days where I'm like, okay, am I going to get found out? Now, I've, I have fewer of those now than I did two years ago, but I had it. People in the C-suite have that too. And when you have that, your ego is a little more fragile than you would think. And so hearing now that negative feedback, that stuff that can make you better, it's easier, easier to take that personally and put it on the, the pile with all the other things that your imposter syndrome is telling you versus saying, hey, this is an opportunity for growth and an opportunity to be more effective. And this may be the very thing that the people that I'm leading need. Yeah. We'll be right back after this short break. We want to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Paul Jackowitz of pauljackowitz.com. For all your website design and management needs, visit Paul Jackowitz. That's Paul, J-A-C-K-I-E-W-I-C-Z.com. Thank you for checking out the Twins Talk It Up podcast. If you're enjoying this program and are learning something along with us, please consider becoming a supporting member through our Patreon at patreon.com slash DSB Leadership Speaking. Also consider leaving a great rating on iTunes and comment on our other platforms. If you would like more information or would like to become a guest on a future episode, please send a message via our website, www.dsbleadershipgroup.com. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Twins Talk It Up podcast. As a special thank you, we have an amazing offer for our listeners. 20% off products or services on our website. Just send us an email with the subject line podcast, and we will send you that special discount code at dsbleadershipgroup.com. And now, let's get back to the episode. Welcome back to Twins Talk It Up podcast. Yeah, that's... uh. That's profound. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Dave and I did a we had did a podcast on the imposter syndrome as well. And you're absolutely absolutely correct. Is that sometimes people will will be in a position like, well, um, will I be found out? Or 
um, what would people think of me if they know the truth? And their, their ego is fragile. You're absolutely correct. <clears throat> that is very, very phenomenal. I think I want to ask one more question, then I want to get into something fun. So when we look at this is fun for me, by the way, but go for it. Excellent. <laughs> I'm having a blast. Are you kidding? This is how Tony makes a living, Danny. You gotta find that. Why I chose this right. in the first place. So this this cultural this culture at the company that's being built. Uh, I I've noticed that individual organizations that have a poor reception or bad culture have have huge layoffs. They have a hard time finding. Um, good sales reps, good employees. It's like a revolving door. When you see this happening in these organizations, you're doing your sandwich method top down and bottom up. At what point when you start seeing these signs, either data points or you start seeing things show up, do you say, you know what? We need to figure out how to navigate this difficult time within the organization. Does it start with you kind of coaching the, the, the CEO? Does it start with you coaching individual managers? At what point do you say, okay, there's a, this is where we're going to change the culture. Here's how we're going to shift in order to kind of see things move in the right direction because you can't wait until 100 people get laid off. There's got to be some sign that you're seeing when you're meeting with these organizations and you're like, look, if we go down this path, here's what will happen. And so here's how we're going to start changing it. Yeah, great point, great question. It depends, A, on the organization, and it depends on my entry point, right? So, um, you know, part of the problem is sometimes when you talk about, like, hey, there's all these layoffs that's going, that are going on. For some reason, it's like, yeah, we're not even surprised. We kind of knew it. We just didn't want to address it. I mean, it's just <laughs> the truth is we've always seen it. It just wasn't a priority, and now it's coming to bite us <laughs> in the butt. For others, it's like, wow, we didn't know that that was there. And, and you're absolutely right. What ends up happening is, the organization can bring people in, but they can't keep the good ones, right? right? Because good, good candidates can always find a job. That's just the reality. Um, so it, it, it varies. One of the challenges, and it went back to something I think David said earlier, it may have been you, Danny, I can't remember, is it's when the organization wants me to come in and fix everybody but them. Right. Whoever that point of contact, you know, problem is my boss, problem is this other person. No, the, the problem is actually everyone. Mm -hmm. And so now we have to kind of pick our battle. The first thing is, it's almost like when you go into ICU, it's like, okay, what's bleeding the most? I may need to address that. We may need to just kind of get this body stable mm -hmm. if it's really going through some really bad stuff. Um, once you get beyond that, then what I prefer to do is to meet with, it's not just a leadership group. But what it'll be is representatives from a leadership team, representatives from, you know, kind of middle management, and then what I call opinion leaders. These are the influencers within the organization. We may have a two or three day strategic planning session on what's really going on. And we come up with a plan together. Now, I've got the template or the blueprint. But the truth is, if I walk in and say, here's what needs to be addressed first, there's so much about the culture I don't know. And that's why it's so important to have those opinion leaders, because the opinion leaders know the things that the leaders don't, right. because that's who people really go to. They have their finger on the pulse in ways that other people don't. And it's very likely that their voices have not been heard enough in the past, but their their contributions are really gold. And so pulling in all those groups of people, number one, for all of them to hear each other is special. 
So for leaders to hear the opinion leaders and go, wow, I never considered that perspective. Or for opinion leaders to say, here's my concern, and for leaders to address it, and for the opinion leaders to go, wow, I never knew about that dynamic. That changes my view. We get all of them on the same page. Now we can go and we can start to affect the rest of the organization because now you've got a group of people that each one of them can affect 5, 10, 15 people, and they're all in solidarity, and we all have a plan, and we all move together. And so then we determine, is this really something we start from at the bottom, something we start from at the top? What are the weak links? Do you know How much is coaching going to be involved? How much do we need like some outside assessments? All of those things can be figured out once we have a group of solid influencers that are on the same page. Right. Yeah, I think what's interesting, Tony, that you bring that up, that's really what the force multiplier is all about. You know, it's really taking that and saying, how much more can we get out of you? How much more can we get out of myself as a leader? And when you develop an atmosphere like that, when you're bringing in the opinion leaders, middle management, upper management, C-suite, and they're really starting to learn to listen to each other, then that chart to change the overall corporate culture to want to say, hey, I want to trust. I want to listen. And then it allows for what I would say, an atmosphere where you can affect change, where you can affect that, those drivers that's going to allow the company to really have an overall shift of the culture um, from the top down. Because in order for it to be sustained, that trust has to be built where those opinion leaders go, now I see that C-suite member, he or she is actually living that way now. They're, they're seeing a different, not driving organization, but a different leadership of the organization. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing is, and so you're, you're right on, and it's so important for them to be together because during change, it's going to get uncomfortable, yeah. right? We know that. So here's what people, people are going to do the exact same thing that they do. Wait, wait, wait. I know, David, I know you have kids. Danny, do you have kids? I have two girls. Yep. Okay. So here's what's going to happen at work. And you've seen this happen at home, right? So now change is happening. David's coming to me and here's what we got to do. I don't like it. I'm frustrated. So you know what I do? I go to Danny. And I'm hoping that Danny has a different perspective. I'm hoping Danny can be the weak link and he can now be my angle in. So right. if you've got now an entire team where there's no weak, weak link and there's no place to go and hide, because what would happen in the past is they would pit the opinion leaders against the leaders and the leaders against the opinion leaders and the leaders against one another. Right. Because not everyone's bought in at the same level. But if you have this core group now, we're like, hey, we're holding arms together. You can't break this chain. Mm. That has a bigger effect. Wow. That's that's profound right there. I, I, I want to um, take a side note. I think that. Um, before before I ask this fun question, I, I really thought when you talked about the operating room and you talk about the ER and people coming in, he said sometimes you just need to stabilize and stop the bleeding first mm -hmm. then you can reassess and good point sometimes we can get overwhelmed as business owners and we just go to work as normal put on those little blinders like horses have you can't see to the right or the left because it's just too difficult to deal with it you don't know where to start and where to begin right right <laughs> so i could see i could definitely see uh why you say it's important to have the opinion leaders why it's important to have their influencers because it can actually help faster than than going to one person like a CEO and then trying to work backwards. It's, it's important to have them all help each other to be better as you stated. Exactly. Um, 
You know, earlier we had talked about right behind you that your book and uh, why you had uh, changed the title and what the original title was. But I also noticed that there are some pretty cool albums back behind you as well. And so Dave had mentioned in the beginning that not only are you a public speaker, you're, you're uh, an executive and company culture change artist, but you're also a musician. Yep. And so are you using those uh, albums behind you, the artist, Rick James, and some of these individuals, does that play into the style of music that you, play, that you listen to, that you play on a regular basis, or does that kind of just feed you when you're, when you're moving forward and motivating you as you're coming up with the opportunities to create more content, create more creativity behind you? Both, both, absolutely both. So, you know, for those who can't see behind me, what happens is I do Facebook Lives every week, right? I do three a week. And so I change my album covers per week. So this week I have uh, Steve Miller's Fly Like an Eagle album, which is awesome, classic, right? You know, um, I've got Rick James busting out of L7, which this is the album right here that made me want to become a musician, right? Wow. And it wasn't because of anything other than the three women that he was holding hands with. <laughs> um, but Rick James was like an early influence into, you know, I, I was really into Rick James, even as a youngster. Um, Marillion is a prog band out of, out of Great Britain. And they have these, their first three, four albums were unbelievable concept albums, right? They're probably most compared to Genesis, but I, I love the combination of high level musicianship as well as fish. The original singer was nothing, nothing less than a poet. And then she which we often, you know, remember Lay Freak, which is a jam from the, the 80s and some other songs. This is just a great album. And recently I was listening to it because, um, you know, I, I, Niall Rogers and I are connected on social media. Now saying, you know, people forget, they think of Niall Rogers as a rhythm guitarist, but they forget like his soloing on Savoir Faire is unreal. So musically, I listen to almost, almost everything. And I play... You know, my first band I was in, I was really like in a rock metal band, right? We were playing Metallica when Metallica was young. Like we were the same age. Like I actually met Metallica three times, uh, got to hang out with them when I was 17. Um, mm. You know, and I play a lot of funk. Um, don't really have the chops for jazz working on that. Mm. But then at the same time, music affects my mood, right? Mm. So there's a huge difference between when I'm listening to you know, hip hop, whether it's, you know, the new Buster Rhymes that came out yesterday or, you know, Migos or Com I mean, all these albums just came out like in the last week. Common just had an album that dropped. Uh, T.I. just dropped an album. But, you know, that's one mood. But then sometimes I'm listening to Stravinsky or mm. Modest Mussorgsky. And they all, what I realized is they all bring out a different type of creativity within me, right? Like my respect for classical music makes me think in terms of more complex things. Mm. My respect for often for like funk and basic rock helps me to remember often the most famous songs aren't the most complex songs. Right? They're the songs that connected and resonated, right? And so... Uh, for me, you know, I am a musician at heart. My kids are musicians. My wife uh, is as well. You know, that connection with me, whether it's to influence my mood or 
you know, it's, I almost feel like even as a speaker, I'm, even though I have a chemical engineering background, I'm as much an artist am I as, as I am an engineer. So when I'm on stage, you feel that. You feel that this is not just about information. This is about an experience. And I'm trying to give you a visceral experience because if I do that, you'll better remember the information. That's true. I think, um, man, I, it so relates to me as well. Uh, have a similar background, mechanical engineering student uh, and, and went throughout computer science for graduate school and played uh, trumpet and clarinet for 20 years. I was actually right before COVID hit, I would say before the governor shut down at Texas, uh, maybe a week or two before that. I was, there's actually a couple, uh, what I would call radio and music album stations here in, in Austin. And there's actually a physical store that still sells albums. Yep. Which you, you hardly ever see those anymore. And yep. uh, so I walked in, there was a band playing. Uh, and I played, I played classical trumpet and then I transitioned to jazz trumpet, which was a very difficult transition. That's another story. But there was a, there was a group that was playing called Brownout. And uh, man, I was moved because Brownout had live musicians, the trumpet, the, the piano, the drums, uh, the saxophone, but yet it brought in beats from the Caribbean from the uh, South African and from and South America. And they, and they brought all these beats into modern jazz as well. Uh, and, the, and, and then the lead singer who played the, uh, who played the trumpet also sang. And it was, I was like, man, when was the last time I felt giving into this? You know, I just, man, I wanted to buy the album. I just wanted to get in with what they're going. I felt the funk. I was just, man, this is exciting. This, I just, I don't know what happened at that time, but I like, I got to get a couple albums. Yep. I, I just felt moved because it related to me. I knew what it was like growing up. I knew what it was like how many hours a day, three, four hours a day, I would have to practice every single day in order to get to a point where I felt like I was mastering my craft. And here are these individuals who I have not seen a live band in so long. I've seen, I've seen people get up, play, you know, I've been to um, live rock band concerts and things like that. But, the, but to see a live band where there's brass instruments and soul singing, I was, I was moved. I yeah. Was moved. Well, number one, applaud you for the transition from classical to jazz. Mm -hmm. So I played classical trumpet for a long time as well. In fact, I still have a, I've been thinking about picking, back, picking it back up and I got to build up my embouchure. That is such a crazy transition. But you know what you made me think of? So about a year ago, I was in a band. We, we I mean some um, phenomenal musicians. I'm a bass player, and you know the uh, lead singer, uh, his sister is a very well-known '80s musician, and he's like one of these like all instrument guru type dudes. But what's interesting is, see, I as a bass player, I love playing in bands. That's kind of what I did far more than I do practicing, right? I, I don't love sitting through scales, and but I'm working on it. I'm going through all my modes and doing all that stuff right now. But I think that there's something to that when we start talking about leadership, yeah. right? You can tell musicians who have played with bands versus musicians who have practiced. Because there's a when you play with a metronome, you're playing with what's supposed to happen. When you play with the band, you have to adjust to what's actually happening. Mm. And if the drummer is slightly off, 
you got to still be in sync with that drummer. If, you know, if someone wants to change, like if you have to change keys because the singer doesn't have the range they used to have, you've got to be able to immediately transpose that. And I think there's something about that when you think of leadership and working in the real world, there are many people who lead based on how things should be on paper, but they have a hard time adjusting to the real world of, of leading in a band. Yeah. Yeah, that's... um. That is so interesting because uh, you're absolutely right. When I was, I'm so used to reading sheet music. Yeah. Oh, dude. So yeah. Used to following a conductor. Yeah. And then one day a friend said, Hey, why don't you uh, come play with my friends? Play what? Oh, we're, we're, we're just going to do some jazz. Oh, uh, how do I do that? So I'm in the room with them and they just start playing. He said, Okay, just jump in when you're ready. Like, <laughs> where, where's the music? What are you talking about? Where's the sheet music? Uh, who, who's leading? How, how fast do I go? How high and how low? What's the crescendo? He's like, uh, no, dude, you got to feel it. What am I feeling? I did. Right. It was so confusing. And then everybody's doing their thing. The bass goes and takes control. And the guy looks at everyone, looks at me, say, it's on you, man. Jump in. Jump in what? <laughs> like, this is your time to flow, man. This is your time to be free. I'm like, free what? I don't get it. It, it, it was so difficult to go from sheet music to the soul inside and feel it, right? Because yep. your, your friends, your people, your team will pick you up. They will go with your flow. They'll go with your beat. And then when you're done, after you had a chance to, to showcase, they jump right on in as if you guys had one seamless whole transitional music put, put together. What people right. don't realize, it, it is the feel. It, it was so profound. It just blew my mind because as an engineer – I'm methodical. A former military guy, I'm methodical. You go to look at my closet, all my clothes are the same color, the same direction, the same way. All my underwear, socks, everything's folded the exact same way. And now you're saying, dude, get rid of all that. Just be free. I, I was blown away. I didn't know how to do that. Right. Oh, dude, yeah. Well, it's funny. So I played trumpet class, like a classical player, and I played bass the exact opposite. Yep. Right? Like it took me years to learn how to read bass clef because I could feel the instrument and I had enough of a musical acumen and a good enough memory that I didn't need to. Even when I was, I would take lessons. I took lessons for a little bit then a stop because that's a whole long story. I took lessons when I was in Chicago at a conservatory. And I remember we were playing a song called All the Things, you know, uh, All the Things You Are. And we're playing. And so my teacher, she's, you know, PhD in music. She's playing the piano and I'm playing. And she just stopped and said, you're not reading. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, there's no possible way, having just learned this, that you could play this as well as you're playing and read. Mm -hmm. You're not reading. And I, because I could feel the song, yeah. right? And so I think there's, there's something magical about that transition. And that's why I said going from classical to jazz, like I can't do that on a trumpet. Mm -hmm. On a trumpet, you got to give me, you know, dots you know i gotta have dots on a, on a sheet of paper or i'm lost but on bass i can do that and i think that's that's the thing for us in life right like we're always looking for sheet music yes wow. and it doesn't always come yeah and and if you're not aware of it then we're afraid of the freedom that we get when we're exposed to that right which it should be like wow once we get used to it man, this is the best thing in the world. I can't imagine going back to being, you know, restricted to these things. 
Wow. Where, but if you're not used to that, you're like, whoa, whoa, I don't want that. Give me my dots. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I love this. This is really fascinating. Listen to you two guys speak. You're both engineers by training and then you both are musicians and I'm just sitting back, just smiling. Look at you guys flowing right there. I mean, you guys got to flow right now. So yeah, this is this really is cool. Awesome. But it really is really reflective of what you said about companies and cultures. You know, what kind of atmosphere are we building? What kind of culture are we building? Are we building one where they're still trying to find their way to read the dots? Or are we building one there's free flowing? Yep. And when you have that, then I believe without a doubt, you get a more productive, more energetic, more engaged company. And that's really where we've got to see the future of where these companies are going, especially now in light of the health pandemic. We've got to start transitioning to where people are feeling the music of the company. Yeah. We're finding their way. No, 100%. And, you know, the reality is we're not even close to this thing being over. Yeah. And I think people's, you know, it's the fear of not doing that that's making people prematurely hope for a new normal that's not been revealed yet. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's why it really is on us as, as companies. Look, there's nothing wrong with dots. There's nothing wrong with having sheet music. You know, classical musicians are unbelievably talented and the way that they can break down and make you feel what's been written on sheet music is is unbelievable and there is a world for that at the same time there also has to be a world for everyone else who's like that's not how i express myself but how do i now fit into this greater collective and contribute right and as we as as companies as we figure that out better and better what we'll find out is, you know, we often read about all of the value and the competitive advantage of diversity and, and you know, losing hierarchy, but we don't experience it because we quit too early. Yeah. But as we now start to actually do these things, we can actually live those advantages. I agree with that. I think what's um, inspiring, Tony, and I just want to share this for our, our audience and our listeners We've known each other for quite a few years, but when I saw the work you were doing and I realized the impact you were making, I I instantly wanted to learn more about what I could do to use my strengths, to use my gifts. And even as a minister and speaking for 27 years, you, you definitely encouraged me to consider how to use my voice to be able to help shape the organizations I'm going to be working with. So I, I want to say thank you for really taking on that that willingness to help mentor, encourage me direct me, guide me on that. So you're not just doing organizations, you're really helping to shape minds. And I appreciate that. I want you to know that. Well, I appreciate your friendship and letting me into your world. I mean, you know, it's easy to, for some people, it's easier to work with than others. And so, man, I love working with you. I love, love our friendship. So it's great. Well, I'm looking forward to doing more with you down the road. And I want to let our listeners know that you could definitely find Tony, just Google his name. You'll see that he has incredible material online. He has some of some sample of his work online, his workshops, his classes. You can find his TED talk on how to stop settling for less. You could talk about his book, The Force Multiplier. If you aren't wanting to look at those long drives or train rides and, and read the book, you can listen to it. He, he's got it on, auto, on an audible version, which is incredible. And he, he's kind of modest. He didn't share that he's working on another book right now. So there's so much Tony's doing. And and I want you to know that even right now in the health pandemic, we're talking about what's the new normal. This is the normal. And we are learning to make adjustments. We are resilient as people. And I believe that without a doubt, 
that having someone like Tony in to provide his expertise, his training is going to continue to help you navigate these waters so that we can have a more productive, energetic, and really inspiring organization that we help to lead and shape. So I just wanted to thank you, Tony, for joining us today, joining the Twin Talks Talk It Up podcast for uh, lending your, your expertise. So I want to say thank you for joining us, buddy. Well, thanks for having me. I mean, honestly, this has been a phenomenal conversation. So really appreciate it. Well, it won't be the last for sure. And if you are interested in learning more about Tony, go ahead and find him online. You can Google him. You can also send us a message and we'll make sure we, we facilitate a connection. You can also not only uh, subscribe and find us on the different um, pl- uh, podcast platforms, give us a five-star rating. Tell us what you like about this show, what you want to see out of this show. And then we also want to encourage you to look at being a, a supporter, become a Patreon supporter. You can go to patreon.com forward slash DSP leadership speaking and ask us about commercial spots. We want to be able to tie you in, include you into our world as we continue to dive into the areas of communication and leadership. So on behalf of my identical twin brother and our guest today, we want to thank you for joining us and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode. Have a great afternoon, guys. Stay productive. Thank you for listening to the Twins Talk It Up podcast. Please subscribe and follow us on Instagram at DSB Leadership and visit us online at dsbleadershipgroup.com to learn more about our workshops and trainings. We will see you on the next episode of the Twins Talk It Up podcast.